2: I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington and this week on Face the Nation, across the country and around the world, the COVID-19 or coronavirus emergency goes from bad to much worse. With one in four Americans under orders to stay home unless it's absolutely essential to go out, fear and uncertainty have become the new normal.
3: It's now at 148 foreign countries can you believe that
2: states are struggling to line up resources and equipment to ensure they can handle the now inevitable onslaught of new infections in some places testing is now limited to health care workers and those who are seriously ill in new york state the situation is dire
4: we are literally scouring the globe looking for medical supplies.
2: President Trump is under pressure and under fire for continuing to send out confusing signals about the federal government's response.
5: What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now, who are scared? Uh, I say
3: that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope.
2: But is the president spreading false hope by promoting drugs that have not been proven to be effective in treating coronavirus
3: may work may not work
6: you know smart guy i feel good about it
2: we'll have the latest on the situation in the u.s and around the world as well as an update on what's likely to be the biggest economic bailout in history dr anthony fauci of the national institutes of health Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former Director of the National Economic Council, Gary Cohn will all join us. Finally, John Dickerson's perspective on leadership in times of crisis. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning. And welcome to Face the Nation. It has been another week of fear and frustration as the country and the world continue to try to cope with the coronavirus. Internationally, the number of cases reached a new milestone Saturday and now stands at over 300,000. There have been over 13,000 deaths. The rate at which it is spreading is truly alarming. The World Health Organization reported Friday that although it took three months to reach 100,000 cases worldwide, It took only 12 days to reach another 100,000. We begin with the situation here in the United States, where there are now at least 26,000 reported cases of coronavirus, and 340 people have died, an enormous increase from just one week ago. The U.S. borders to Mexico and Canada are closed to non-essential travel, and the State Department is advising people to avoid going anywhere abroad and now a quarter of the country is under mandatory stay-at-home orders, allowed to go out only for essential services. One of the states with that mandatory order is California. CBS News correspondent Jamie
7: Yukis reports from Los Angeles. California's stay-at-home restrictions went into effect late last week, but for New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, Tomorrow will be the first day when most of the close to 40 million people in those states are being asked not to go to work. Governors in these hard-hit states are sending consistent messages when it comes to staying home.
8: Those young people that are still out there on the beaches uh, thinking this is a party, yeah, time to grow up, you know, time to wake up, time to, to recognize it's not just about the old folks, it's about your impact on their lives. Don't be selfish.
0: We need you to just stay at home.
7: In Los Angeles, the Department of Public Health advised providers only to administer a test if a positive result would change treatment. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says his state is following these rules.
4: If you have been exposed to someone positive, if you are showing symptoms, if you meet that protocol, you get a test.
7: But as more people get sick, Places like Maryland activated more than 2,000 National Guard troops to help with transporting patients, conducting temperature screenings at state facilities, and working with local hospitals to set up triage tents. Here in California, the governor deployed the National Guard to assist food banks facing food shortages. The governor also says he's working with Apple CEO Tim Cook and tech titan Elon Musk to produce more masks and ventilators for health care providers. Margaret? Thank you, Jamie. We go now to Capitol
2: Hill, where Congress is working on what is likely to be the largest economic rescue package in U.S. history. Chief Congressional Correspondent Nancy Cordes is there. Nancy,
1: how are the negotiations going? Well, Margaret, Republicans tell us that the negotiations have all but wrapped up on this massive package. Democrats say they still have some big sticking points, but everyone understands here that time is of the essence because every day businesses are laying more workers off. And one big piece of this package that has come together over the weekend is what some Democrats are describing as unemployment insurance on steroids, where if you have lost your job as a result of this crisis, the government would pay to keep you at your previous salary for perhaps as long as four months. Beyond that, they are still fine-tuning those one-time cash payments for American workers, about $1,200 for individuals who make up to $75,000 a year, plus an additional $500 for every child of those workers. Then there's a very robust small business piece, a $350 billion package of loans and grants. Republicans estimating that that money could keep those businesses afloat for about six to seven weeks. All of these initiatives, plus the loans to the airlines, plus a big surge of funding for hospital gear, will cost, we're told, between $1.5 and $2 trillion, and those numbers could go up. The four top congressional leaders will be sitting down this morning with the Secretary of the Treasury to hash all of this out one last time. The goal, Margaret, is still to hold a final vote in the Senate tomorrow and then send it to the House, hopefully to the president's desk, by midweek.
2: And we'll be tracking that. Thank you, Nancy Cordes. Uh, we turn now to London and CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer for a look at the
9: latest around the world. Margaret, I'm standing in the center of London. This is Trafalgar Square, and normally it would be mobbed, but as you can see, it's practically deserted. We've had more than 5,000 cases of coronavirus in the UK so far, and the infection is still spreading. But for reasons nobody really understands, it's Italy that has by far the worst outbreak. Doctors in northern Italy are fighting a round-the-clock battle to save lives, and they're losing. Almost 800 patients died overnight from Friday to Saturday, and the bad news is there is no evidence the tide is turning.
0: I never felt so stressed in my life.
9: As military trucks transported coffins to the local crematorium outside Bergamo, epidemiologists warned that infection on this scale may engulf the whole of Europe. Spain, already hard hit with almost 400 new deaths overnight, is getting ready. Health officials in Madrid, for example, are setting up a vast temporary hospital in a conference centre. Here in Britain, there was a last Friday night hurrah at pubs before the government ordered them shot this weekend, along with restaurants. Everywhere, along with the anxiety, is extraordinary compassion. When coronavirus meant that the body of Betty Ryan was driven to the cemetery in the west of Ireland with neither funeral nor wake, most of the town turned out to say goodbye in a spontaneous guard of honor. The other major center of the outbreak is Iran. It's got an infection rate and a death rate similar to Spain's and climbing. And now governments in Africa and India are bracing themselves with billions of citizens for at least a crisis and maybe, Margaret, a catastrophe. Liz Palmer, that important
2: look at the pandemic. Thank you. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, and that is where he joins us from this morning. Dr. Fauci, thank you for making time for us. You, just, you. you just heard that report from our uh, Liz Palmer about Italy. Are we on the same trajectory as Italy?
3: No, Not necessarily at all. I mean, obviously, things are unpredictable. You can't make any definitive statement, but if you look at the dynamics of the outbreak in Italy, we don't know why they are suffering so terribly, but there's a possibility, and and many of us believe, that early on they did not shut out as well the input of infections that originated in China and came to different parts of the world. One of the things that we did very early and very aggressively, the president you know, put the travel restriction
10: mm-hmm. coming
3: from, from uh, China to the United States, and most recently from Europe to the United States, because Europe is really the new China. Again, I don't know why this is happening there to such an extent, but it is conceivable that once you get so many of these spreads out, they spread exponentially, and you can never keep up with this tsunami. And I think that's what unfortunately, our colleagues and our dear friends in Italy are facing. They are very competent. It isn't that they don't know what they're doing. I think they have a situation in which they have been so overwhelmed from the beginning that they can't play catch-up. And in direct answer to your question, Margaret, it is maybe, and I hope, and I think it will be the case, that we will not be that way because we have, from the beginning, been able to put a bit of a clamper. We're gonna get hit, there's no doubt about it. We see it in New York. New York is is terribly suffering, but the kinds of mitigation issues that are going on right now, the things that we're seeing in this country, this physical separation, at the same time as we're preventing an influx of cases coming in, I think that's gonna go a long way to preventing us from becoming an Italy.
2: This was an animal virus that jumped to a human. Then it started spreading human to human. Is the virus mutating? Is it changing?
3: Well, uh, this is an RNA virus, Margaret, and it always will mutate. The real question is so that people don't get confused. Viruses can mutate with no substantial impact on its function. So I have no doubt it's mutating as all RNA viruses mutate. We have not seen thus far any type of change in the way it's acting but we're keeping a very close eye on it because it is conceivable that it could mutate and change some of the ways that it performs but we have not seen that yet but we're not going to just not pay attention to it well, we're going to follow it closely
2: that's very important to highlight there you know one of the things that stood out this week in some of the briefings we heard from the white house was this mention particularly from your colleague ambassador burks that young people in Europe seem to be affected in a way that was unexpected. And we heard from the CDC this week, 20% of the hospitalizations in this country um, were between the ages of 20 and 44.
3: Why yeah.
2: are young people getting affected this way when it wasn't expected?
3: You're absolutely correct. And you just nailed the very important critical issue that we're looking very closely at. You know, it looks like there's a big difference between that demography, as we call it, from China and what we're seeing in Europe. Now we have to look at the young people who are getting seriously ill from the European cohort and make sure it isn't just driven by the fact that they have underlying conditions. Because we know that underlying conditions, all bets are off, no matter how young you are. If you have an underlying serious medical condition, you're going to potentially get into trouble. But if they don't have underlying conditions, that will be something we have to really examine as to why we're seeing it here, but we didn't see it in China. So we're going to look at that very closely.
2: You mentioned, uh, in particular, New York and and what may be coming there. Uh, The president has tweeted this morning that Ford, GM, and Tesla have been given the go-ahead to make ventilators. There's been a back and forth over whether the president actually has ordered companies or not to produce needed medical equipment. What have these companies agreed to do? And when will medical professionals have what they need?
3: Well, I mean, as yesterday in the press conference that that I'm sure you heard, what the president was saying is that these companies are coming forth on their own. And I think that's an extraordinary spirit of the American spirit of not needing to be coaxed. They're stepping forward. They're making not only masks, but PPEs, and now ventilators. So what we're going to be seeing, and and we're seeing it already, in the beginning, obviously, there was an issue with testing. The testing now, uh, a a large number of tests are available now out there because the private companies have gotten involved.
2: But like the the mayor of New York has said this week that he was going to run out of medical equipment in in a matter of two weeks. That's true. So when will medical... It is true he will run out? Will the federal government get him what he needs?
3: True, true, to both of them. Let me explain. We were at at the task force meeting yesterday, and it was very clear that the issue in New York was right on the front burner. And the situation is now that the resources that are being marshaled are going to be clearly directed to those hotspots that need it most. And clearly that's California, Washington state, and obviously New York is the most hard hit. So not only is New York trying to get resources themselves, but we're going to be pouring it in from the federal government. So it would be a combination of local and federal. But it's very, very clear that they are a very high priority.
2: You are the leading infectious disease expert in the U.S. government. You said this week um, that you differed from the president in his assessment that a combination of two drugs, hydrochloroquine and azithromycin combined, could uh, have the outcome that he described to the public, they possibly could. Where, Who is the president listening to? And do you see a concern here that those drugs could uh, become, you know, basically oversubscribed and there could be a shortage that could impact people who have persistent medical issues like lupus and need those?
3: Okay, so Margaret, there's an issue here of where we're where coming from. The president has heard, as we all have heard, what what I call anecdotal reports, that certain drugs work. So what he was trying to do and express was the hope that if they might work, let's try and push their usage. I, on the other side, have said, I'm not disagreeing with the fact, anecdotally, they might work, but my job is to prove definitively from a scientific standpoint that they do work. So I was taking a purely medical scientific standpoint And the president was trying to bring hope to the people. Mm -hmm. I think there's this issue of trying to separate the two of us. There isn't fundamentally a difference there. He's coming from it from a hope layperson standpoint. I'm coming from it from a scientific standpoint.
2: And we wish you the best. Uh, Thank you very much, doctor.
3: Good to be with you.
2: We go now to the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump, Gary Cohn. He is back in the private sector now, and he joins us this morning from Long Island. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, We have Congress negotiating the largest economic bailout package, relief package in history. And the Treasury Secretary said this morning that if it doesn't work, they will go back and ask for more money in 10 to 12 weeks. This doesn't sound like there is a timeline on the horizon. Can you give me a scale of what kind of economic pain is coming?
5: Margaret, as we've all been talking about, the economic pain is enormous. You know, you think of all the workers that have been forced out of their jobs um, and, and the economic activity that goes along with that. That is not going on and will not go on anytime in the near future. So what Congress is trying to do, and I applaud what they're trying to do, both on the large businesses and the small business, is they're trying to do an income replacement plan. Keep as many people employed and on companies' payrolls as you can and allow them to keep living, allow them to buy their groceries, allow them to buy the drugs and medicine that they need to live their lifestyle, and simultaneously keep them on the books and records of companies. So when the economy does turn around, and it will turn around, people know where they work, and they can go back to work immediately instead of going through the whole rehiring process. It would be a shame if we let people go, terminated them, put them on unemployment, and then had to try and rehire them once we started the economy.
2: But despite that, There are expectations and estimates from banks like Bank of America that this week alone, three million people could file unemployment, unemployment. and that Goldman Sachs, your old firm, says that number is like two and a quarter million. These are massive numbers. What about those people? How do you uh, provide some kind of support?
5: So what the bill in Congress is doing, and and there's two parts to it. There's the Collins-Rubio piece for the businesses under 500 employees, and there's the larger piece for businesses over 500 employees. These are massive, and I mean massive, stimulus packages that are designed to allow companies to borrow money and, and the loans will be forgiven to keep their employees on the payroll. The people that applied for unemployment last week and that were terminated last week, they were terminated prior to these, this legislation existing. Right. Hopefully, once this legislation gets passed and hopefully it's today or tomorrow and sooner is better, these people can go back on the books and records of their companies and they can get their payroll. They don't have to go on unemployment. What we're trying to do is keep everyone off unemployment, keep them on the books and records of their companies so they can return back to a normalized economy when it exists.
2: And we just don't know when that is yet. But part of what it seems like is unaddressed at this point is what happens to all those people who count as as self-employed, who who are uh, contractors, people who can't necessarily say they're unemployed, but they don't have another paycheck coming. What about them?
5: Margaret, I think that you just hit on a very important topic. and, And I've been talking a lot about this. You know, we've got people that work at big companies. We've got people that work at small companies. And then we've got this big piece of the economy it's either self-employed or contract labor think of people that work at stadiums and arenas think of people that work in catering businesses think of uber drivers and lyft drivers they need to get compensated as well what i would encourage in the legislation hopefully this is in there We go back to those companies that hired part-time labor or hired labor as needed and you go back and look at what you were paying them for the last month or the last two weeks and you go back and pay them that exact amount of money. And those companies can actually go to the two facilities that are created, borrow that money and be relieved of that debt and compensate their people as well.
2: How long do you think the bailout that's being put together will buy us before you see job cuts?
5: Well, what they're trying to do, and I applaud this, is not have job cuts. Allow businesses to keep all of their employees on right. the books and records and continue to pay them their salary. We just that, would be the best, that would be the best outcome. We don't know. If there's any ambiguity, companies are going to act rationally and they're going to cut employees because they're, they're going to constrain their most scarce capital, which is, which is dollars. They're going to hoard dollars, which is the exact wrong thing we want them to do. So what Congress is trying to do right now is the appropriate measure in forcing money into, into businesses and allowing them to keep all their employees on the books.
2: One of uh, the, the key economic players in this country, a member of the Federal Reserve, one of the presidents, Neil Kashkari, uh, told 60 Minutes that they are seeing a freezing up of new financings for corporations. That sounds like when he's looking out there in the marketplace, at credit markets, that there is a warning that this could be a financial crisis.
5: So remember, the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States is the lender of last resort. And so far, they have done an adequate job. They have done many of the things they need to do. What the Fed needs to do now is they need to expand expand who can come to the Fed and borrow money and what securities they will take as collateral. So by expanding the collateral window into municipal bonds, bonds issued by states and local governments who are really feeling the crunch here, those are the people paying out um, some of the medical bills and some of the unemployment insurance and allowing corporate bonds to be pledged at the window as good collateral, we would reopen the corporate borrowing and allow corporates to continue some normal source of economic activity. Or? Or? Or if we, we, look, there is no or. We're in a time where we have to go do these things. We have to allow that collateral to be pledged. And I think the Fed will get there. They've been moving fairly, they've been moving very fast on what they've been doing. They just have to continue to expand what they're doing.
2: Gary Cohn, thank you for joining us. Important perspective, and we will be back with more Face the Nation. Be sure to tune in tonight to Scott Pelley's interview with Neil Kashkari. He helped pull the U.S. out of the 2008 recession. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He joins us from outside his home in Connecticut. Uh, Doctor, good to have you back with us. Um, You've been talking to Congress, you talked to the administration, and you've been clear that you believe there was a, a failure to plan in January for March, and you're saying now in March we need to be looking ahead and planning for May. Exactly what is it that all of us need to be planning for?
11: Well, right now we're engaging in broad-based, population-based mitigation techniques, things like stay-at-home orders, closing schools. These are population-level techniques to try to break off chains of transmission. That's the right thing to do in cities like San Francisco and New York, where we see hot spots, where we see epidemic spread. Unfortunately, we're not engaging in those tactics across the whole country. There should be some form of mitigation across the whole country because we're all at risk. But we need to start thinking about how we transition away from that. Come April, come May, When the epidemic curve starts coming down, we can't just take our foot off the brake immediately. We need to start start including and introducing what we call case-based interventions, trying to do mass screening and identify people who either are infected or who have been in close contact with people who have been infected and go towards more of an individual person approach rather than a population-level approach. That planning needs to be underway right now. We need to know how we're going to slowly transition into another paradigm. It's not a question of either or. It's a question of substituting in other techniques that are less intrusive for what we're doing now.
2: You heard uh, Dr. Fauci say there's no doubt we're going to get hit. He mentioned New York. Uh, There are some projections from New York hospitals that a peak could hit within the next 20 days. What is it that Americans need to be prepared for?
11: Well, I think that the scenes out of New York are going to be shocking. I think that the hospitals in the next two weeks are going to be at the brink of being overwhelmed, and we're going to start to see places like javits convention center and other facilities used to start to house people Um, they're going to start getting thousands of admissions coming into that city and and this was infection that started two weeks ago the time to hospitalization is nine to twelve days I think there's other cities that are at extreme risk. New Orleans is at very high risk and they're not taking appropriate measures. This is a sticky virus. We're learning that much more of the transmission probably happens from touching contaminated surfaces. So any city that has a mass transit system is probably at risk and needs to be taking very aggressive steps. Cities like Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Boston. You've seen San Francisco implement tough measures. Illinois recently implemented tough measures. We need to continue that right now.
2: Is there an existing antiviral drug that is effective in, uh, in at least containing this or preventing someone from getting seriously ill?
11: No, there's drugs that look promising. There's drugs that are in, in proper trials. We really need to continue to conduct research to figure out what works. Right now, there's no drug that looks like it's proven so overwhelming in early stage clinical trials that we can say it's highly promising. There's drugs that suggest that they may have activity against this virus, But the other question is when you introduce the drug. Sometimes when you introduce an antiviral drug late in the course of the disease, after people are in the critical care unit and very sick, it may not provide a benefit. Sometimes you have to introduce an antiviral drug earlier, and that's how we treat the flu, for example, with drugs like Tamiflu. We introduce them earlier in the course of the illness, and that's where they have their greatest benefit. So you would
2: agree with Dr. Fauci that there needs to be clinical trials of hydrochloroquine and azithromycin, which the president said, he thinks is already effective.
11: Absolutely, and that may not be the drug that ends up holding the was promised. The study that looked at that drug and showed um, activity Uh, was a a study that involved about 20 patients and only six in the arm that showed the benefit. And the benefit that they showed was that they decreased the amount of virus in in their noses when you did nasal swabs in those patients. So it could very well be that the drug is reducing viral shedding but having no impact on the clinical course of those patients. So the data on that is very preliminary. What we need to do is what we call a master protocol, where we basically test a lot of drugs at once. We randomize patients to different treatments so everyone gets a treatment if they need it. And we figure out which is working the best. That's what we did with Ebola. And we came up with some very yeah. effective treatments against Ebola.
2: The, the Trump administration announced this past week that the first trial through NIH of a vaccine uh, was started out in Seattle. Given the timeline for this, do resources need to be refocused from a vaccine into some of the treatments that, that you are talking about?
11: I think absolutely. Uh, We could have a drug, a potential uh, prophylactic drug that could prevent people from getting an infection or even treat an infection as early as this summer, Um, especially when you look at some of the approaches where companies are developing antibodies that directly target the virus. I think this is highly promising. We need to be putting a lot of resources into that. Senator Daines introduced a provision in Capitol Hill that may be included in the final package. And what it would do is it would basically scale up manufacturing right away for the promising treatments that make it into the government sanctioned trials so that if one ends up working, we're ready to distribute it on a mass scale. You have literally millions of doses available. Now what's gonna happen is a lot of those drugs won't work and we're gonna end up throwing away the drug that we manufactured. But I think that's a small price to pay for the benefit of having drug available if in fact one proves that it's working.
2: Uh, In other words, taxpayers helping to subsidize some of this research immediately. When do you see us being able to plan about going back to normal life?
11: Well, I think it's gonna be a slow transition. I think that the epidemic right now that's underway is probably gonna peak sometime in April, probably late April and tail off into uh, May and June. And hopefully transmission will be broken off in July and August. We need to plan for what we're going to do in the fall to prevent another epidemic and outbreak. But life's never going to be perfectly normal until we get to a vaccine. We're always going to have to implement some measures, but they could be case based measures where we look at individuals and screen very aggressively for the virus and quarantine and isolate individual people rather than quarantining mass populations. That's what we need to get to. That's going to be a transition, but we can get there. There is a light at the end of this tunnel.
2: Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. And we want to go now to the president and CEO of the American Hospital Association for the latest on how hospitals are battling the pandemic. Richard Pollack joins us from downtown Washington this morning. Good morning to you. Good
4: morning. And let me just say at the outset, I just want to recognize the unbelievable work that's going on in our hospitals by the doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers. Their dedication uh, and their efforts are ones that we should all very much appreciate.
2: And I think... Everyone in this country would agree with you on that point, sir. Um, I want to ask you, though, about uh, w- what we need to know and what Congress should be focused on getting to those medical workers. Yeah. There's about 110 billion promised in this emergency legislation. What does that get the doctors and the hospitals around the country? Is it enough to meet the need?
4: Yeah, um, it's a start, and it's a very good start. The American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, and us, the Hospital Association, all said that we needed a minimum of $100 billion. And we're hopeful that that package will deliver us the assistance that's needed, the tools and resources that are needed, so that we can continue to respond to this crisis. Um, This is an unprecedented situation in which we're entering uncharted waters. Uh, the congressional leadership on the Senate side, in particular Senator, Senator McConnell and Senator Schumer, um, are very attentive to this matter. Mm-hmm. We're hoping to see legislation uh, that provides us with assistance when it comes to increasing capacity, when it comes yeah. to paying for overtime, and very importantly, when it comes to helping us with cash flow to sustain our operations. We could see hospitals close uh, in this situation as well because they just don't have the resources.
2: The White House and the American Academy of Surgeons has publicly called on Americans and hospitals to reschedule elective surgeries because they don't want to overwhelm hospitals and they want to save equipment for those worst-case scenarios. Do you now support that? Because I know you weren't supportive of that call for a while. No, that's
4: not quite right. Um, We support guidelines that were put out by the federal government Around the notion of elective surgery. And we have found that in most cases across the country uh, that is the case. Sometimes there's a little confusion between uh what's considered elective surgery. There are things that uh, might be elective that are in fact life saving. Well so like do replacing so a heart valve. But so there's no question think, that we have though, stopped doing that in a lot of areas. And
2: what you're saying is too uh, nebulous. Do you think there need to be specific guidelines set out saying hospitals stop these kind of elective surgeries plastic are, surgery for example knee they're, replacement there are those there. kind of specifics well state and districts is what you have said should be able to make those calls do you want the federal government to provide more clarity on that?
4: federal government has already done it the Centers for Medicare, and Medicare Service, Medicare and Medicaid Services has put out guidelines we support those guidelines
2: Okay. Um, So how do hospitals then determine who can get needed medical supplies, things like ventilators? Is is there a process? Is there a guideline in this? Or is it luck of the draw?
4: In terms of ventilators, we're going to need more. Um, There is a supply. Many people have them, but there's a gap, and we're going to need more. But the most immediate thing we need is personal protective equipment the masks, the gowns, the goggles, uh, that type of equipment to protect our health care heroes that are on the front lines. That is what is most essential now. If we don't protect our health care workers, the system will completely collapse. That's what's necessary. And that's why, in fact, we need to see the Defense Production Act employed in an aggressive manner. It's great that people are stepping up uh, but yeah. we need to be more aggressive in getting those supplies to the front lines.
2: Right. They and may be
4: flowing, but we need more.
2: Right, No, and that is why I, I asked Dr. Fauci about that. Thank you very much, Mr. Pollack. We will be right back.
9: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
2: We now go to the chairman and CEO of FedEx, Frederick Smith, who is in Memphis, Tennessee this morning. Good to see you. Thank you for joining us.
8: Good morning. Uh,
2: Our latest reporting is that this bill Congress is still negotiating contains about $8 billion in rescue money uh, for carriers. Will your company be seeking any part of that federal aid?
8: I don't think so at this point in time. It would only uh, be available or needed by FedEx and the all cargo industry if things really get bad and then only in the form of uh, loan guarantees. Now, the passenger carriers, which have a $50 billion package, that's a different story. They're in uh, very dire straits with significant lack of demand. That's not the situation with us. In certain cases, our business has actually increased because of this situation. In others, it's declined. So I doubt that we'll need it, but it's a good thing to have there so we don't have to shut down long-term projects like facility construction and purchase of airplanes and trucks and things of that nature.
2: provide some certainty for your planning. But your CEO of one of your divisions, FedEx Express, signed onto a letter yesterday that was released. He signed alongside some of those passenger carrier uh, CEOs, and it urged Congress to swiftly pass this bill they're still negotiating or saying there will be mass furloughs, there will be mass layoffs, What size uh, of layoffs are we talking about? What is your company expecting?
8: Well, FedEx is not expecting any layoffs at all. Quite the contrary, our people are working uh, very heavily on both the business-to-business side, moving things for hospitals and diagnostic labs, uh, picking up specimens and getting them into uh, the various locations where they can be tested. The passenger carriers are, again, that's a completely different story. They have very little demand at the moment for their services. And if they don't get this $50 million relief, and I think that's mostly loan guarantees as well, they will begin massive layoffs. They have no option.
2: There are, uh, for you in the, in the cargo side, um, you are still able to function to deliver things around the world. But there are significant travel restrictions. Um, What are you seeing in terms of supply lines staying open?
8: Well, we began to deal with this problem in our operations in China in January, and there we took extraordinary measures to to protect our people and our pilots. Uh, Just last week, for instance, we flew 246 flights in and out of China. So we've been dealing with this for a long time. China's now actually back mostly in production. About 90% of their big factories are open. Their smaller businesses, less so, but about 70%. So, with the shutdown of uh, the passenger operations across the Pacific, we have significant backlogs coming into this country and a significant amount of traffic going back to China. More recently, the same thing's true across the uh, Atlantic. Our mm-hmm. purple tail airplanes are carrying a lot of stuff both ways, passenger planes, which carry a lot of cargo in the underbellies, including some for us, they're all but gone from the market.
2: Um, But but it sounds like you're saying trade can continue, though passenger travel is restricted. I want to ask you about the safety of your employees as well here. I mean, there are reports that we saw in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently uh, saying that this virus can survive on different surfaces for different periods of time. On cardboard, it can survive for about 24 hours. How do you protect delivery workers who are literally going to Americans' front doors?
8: Well, we have massive efforts underway in all of our facilities to try to socially distance uh, folks and their workstations. We're providing gloves and all kinds of antiseptic uh, swabs and things of that nature. Uh, For people that are receiving packages, the CDC says not too much risk, but if you've got concerns, take a little alcohol and rub it across the package after it's left on your door, which is what we're doing we suspended the requirement for signatures in certain cases. So I think the, the risk is low, and we're doing absolutely everything we can, cleaning our facilities uh, prolifically. The place I'm talking to you from, one floor up, we had an employee last week that tested positive for it. We cleaned the building. Uh, we have lots of people working from home. So you just have to work through the issue using every measure at your Disposal. We're moving prolific amounts yeah. of uh, hand sanitizer, for instance, uh, in our freight company at the moment.
2: I'm sure you are. Uh, Fred Smith, thank you for joining us and giving us your insight.
6: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
9: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
5: I could stay here forever.
9: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
11: Um,
2: this crisis is uh, having an enormous impact, as, as you just heard, um, particularly in the airline industry, but that is the entire travel industry that is affected as well. And we're going to turn again this week to our uh, CBS News Transportation correspondent Chris Van Cleve, for more, he joins us from our newsroom. Chris, um, we were just talking about the bailout that uh, bailout that Congress is putting forward. This has billions of dollars, not just for airlines, but for retailers, for hotel companies. How much time does this buy them before we see layoffs?
12: Well, the airlines say if they get the package they want, they can avoid furloughs until at least the beginning of September. I can tell you, though, at least two regional airlines have already said they're shutting down because of the coronavirus and the drop in demand. Marriott Hotels has already started furloughing what it expects to be tens of thousands of workers, not only frontline workers, but also amongst their corporate staff, as Marriott has started to shutter some hotels temporarily because demand in the hotel industry. They're running at about 25 percent of what they should be typically. And the airlines are seeing passenger loads at 20 to 30 percent. It's just not a viable business without help.
2: There's been this debate over whether uh, the U.S. government and the U.S. taxpayers should essentially just hand over money in a grant to these airliners or whether it should be essentially a loan that could end up looking something like taking a stake as they did during the auto bailouts. What is it that the industry is actually asking for?
12: Sure. So the airlines are asking for a mix of immediate grants to keep their payrolls operational through at least the end of August. They're also asking for a package of loans and some tax changes, some tax benefits that would help them weather this. You know, an airline told me that, listen, they're going to operate about forty percent of the network they were operating just at the beginning of march and they said we can't afford to be forty percent of an airline with hundred percent of the payroll unless somebody steps up to fill in the gap it's just not viable What's in the Senate bill appears to be a package of loans, and airlines and their labor unions are worried that that won't be sufficient to keep, uh, to avoid large-scale furloughs uh, in the airline industry. Uh, The hotel's already seeing that, so uh, clearly there is a a pressure to, uh, from the airline standpoint, to get an influx of cash immediately. In exchange for that, they've said that they uh, will, will not furlough workers until uh, at least September, that they'll put limits on executive compensation, stock buybacks, and dividends. Uh, and certainly, Congress can add other terms to that.
2: So, functionally, what does that mean? Is air travel essentially going to be shutting down?
12: Well, we just uh, today saw that Emirates, one of the larger global carriers, is going to suspend all passenger travel uh, later this month. Uh, U.S. air travel domestically, the president has said he wants to keep uh, it it going domestically, at least for uh, absolutely essential travel. Um, But the airlines, without any support, say they'll be out of money in the coming months. Already, we've seen a dramatic decline. Um, Some numbers for you. A year ago, TSA screened 2.5 million travelers in a day. Uh, On Thursday, they screened fewer than 600,000. At the beginning of the month, they were screening about 2.5, 2.3 million. Uh, You can see the drop-off, 76% decline in travel. Uh, That's very challenging, Margaret, but the plan is to keep the planes flying for now.
2: No doubt. Chris Van Cleve, thank you. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Okay,
6: picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 60 Minutes
2: correspondent John Dickerson is our resident presidential historian. So we asked him for his thoughts this Sunday about leadership in times of crisis.
6: As America struggles through quarantine, we're all improvising, officials at the podium and parents at the kitchen table, as we shift to a social distance archipelago, each island six feet apart. This marching coronavirus is new, but America has faced similar times, the Great Depression, World Wars, after 9-11. Each crisis has produced a leader, The names were different, but there is a pattern.
3: The only thing we have to fear is
6: fear itself. Franklin Roosevelt targeted fear in his inaugural address because while his programs would take time to kick in, the fight against fear could start right away, and success in that fight would make future ones easier. We could use a little of that. Every television seems tuned to the panic station. 75% of us say we're worried, according to one poll. But Roosevelt didn't dismiss fear. He gave Americans a ladder over it, reminding them of all that previous generations of Americans had overcome and survived. After FDR's speech, one listener said any man who can talk like that in times like these is worthy of every ounce of support a true American has. A leader helps tell us who we are, says Reagan speechwriter Peggy Noonan. We lean forward, hungry to hear, she says. Now we will hear the thing we longed for. That's how leadership works. It's not just blowing a trumpet, but sounding a call that people hear and respond to. It's the difference between a locker room speech and locker room talk. The best leaders trust the public and make them allies, says Amanda Ripley, who has studied disasters of all sorts and how to respond to them. The public performs extremely well when they are treated like grown-ups and told the truth. This is why Dr. Anthony Fauci has become a hero. People crave facts. Leaders know people don't panic when they are informed. Instead, they are spurred to help. President Eisenhower said leadership consists of nothing but taking responsibility, including for everything that goes wrong, and giving your subordinates credit for everything that goes well. A leader taking responsibility no matter what shows that someone asking for sacrifice is also willing to sacrifice. Showing grace in that duty also puts a leader in worthy company with all the nurses, doctors and other Americans who show us every day that while the vaccine will come from the laboratory, the will to fight is already inside us.
2: We thank you for watching Face the Nation today. We've worked hard, mostly from home like many of you, but we are here with minimal staff. We'll be back next week to continue giving you the best information that we can. Today, we end with a view of isolation around the world and remind you, we are all in this together. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony Fauci, former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, President and CEO of the American Hospital Association, Richard Pollock, Former National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn, and Chairman and CEO of FedEx, Frederick Smith. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
6: A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery+.
10: Why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early
7: and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.